Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. Today we are going to look at scriptures in the week of Second Lent, the second Sunday in Lent, which begins on a Sunday. And the scripture readings for the principal services of that day are given, and they are different from the daily lectionary readings. The, these readings are an opportunity, seven days a week, for you and me to be reading scriptures that will cultivate our love for God, bless our love for God, learn, opportunity to pray, uh, opportunity to uh, learn about the scriptures in such a way that our relationship with Christ grows and is nourished through the reading of these scriptures. And as I said last time that we met, we have Genesis, we have 1 Corinthians, and we have the Gospel of Mark. You'll see the scriptures in this post are listed for you day by day, and we are to read those throughout the day and give some kind of uh, preparation for them in our hearts and our minds and our souls by being quiet, by listening. You might pick up a commentary. You might have a, a Bible that has notes attached to the bottom of it that might help you with the passage. Well, I left you in Genesis kind of on the edge of your seat, uh, chapter 41, verse 13, where uh, Pharaoh, the most powerful person in Egypt, and quite frankly, one of the most powerful people in the world at that time, he has a dream, and no one can interpret the dream. And they found out about this man named Joseph. Now, if you remember from last time that we met, when we looked at the scriptures for the first Sunday in Lent, the first Sunday in Lent, we found out that Joseph had this skill to hear dreams, to have dreams, and to interpret the dreams. He could even interpret other people's dreams, as we'll see with Pharaoh. So Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, verse 14. They quickly brought him out of the pit. Now, he never got out. He was promised, but... The person forgot about it. When he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Now, this was very, very big deal. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you, what you hear, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, remember, Joseph is in prison. The Egyptians are very, very, very powerful. The Jewish people are basically their enemy. I mean, they're not fighting them at the time, but they are certainly inferior to them. I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you can. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So he tells him the dream. He said, I can't interpret dreams, but God can through me. Joseph had this phenomenal, phenomenal skill that God gave him. It wasn't his. God used him to do this. So he told him the dream and he gave him the interpretation. So Pharaoh said, I've had a dream and here's the dream. And so he shares the dream with him. And Joseph says in verse 25, following the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He says, the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up 
or seven years, and the seven empty years blighted by the east wind or seven years of famine. Okay, so God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. You're going to have seven years of plenty, and you're going to have seven years of famine. All right, he said the famine is going to consume the land, verse 30. The plenty will be unknown by reason of the famine that will follow. It will be very severe. All right, God is going to bring this shortly about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise person and set him over the land of Egypt. Okay, so this is going to happen. We're going to have seven good years and seven terrible ones. You need to appoint someone in order to control this thing and to manage this thing so that when we go through the famine years, we're going to survive. God's going to bring it to pass. There's nothing you can do about it. Let Pharaoh proceed, verse 34 of chapter 41, to appoint overseers of the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food should be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are occurring in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So he actually tells him what he should do. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph in verse 39, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. So not only did he have the ability to interpret dreams, he also had the ability to interpret them and to provide a solution for them. So this man was wise and this man had discernment, tremendous qualities in a person. He said, you're going to be over my house and all my people and you shall order your, uh, themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. As I said to you last time, the only person that greater than Joseph is going to be Pharaoh himself. I've set you over all the land of Egypt. So he took his signet ring from his hand, verse 42. He put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Now, this guy was in the pit. This guy was in prison. And he made him ride in the second chariot. Prominent position. Bow the knee, and he set them over the land of Egypt. I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Whatever you say goes. I will back you up. You are in charge. If you say it, that's what it's going to be. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asna, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So, Moses, so Joseph went over all the land of Egypt. Now, he was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, verse 46. Zaphonath Paneah. Azaneth, Azaneth, his wife. So he's married, he's out of the pit, he's the second in uh, Egypt. He is now going to, over the next seven years, there's going to be tremendous, tremendous growth, tremendous, beautiful harvest. He's going to manage that. He's going to put some aside. Now the famine comes, he takes care of that. So as you read through these fantastic chapters, we're looking at chapter 41, we're looking at chapter 42, and chapter 43, 
you're going to find in 42, I'm not going to detail it for you, but enjoy reading it. In 42 and 43, we have the coming of Joseph's brothers. Now, they've been separated from Joseph for some time. Now, they're going to need help when the famine comes. Okay? So, Jacob sends the boys to, to, to Egypt to find out if they can get some grain, if they can get some help. And so, what happens there is this fantastic conversation, confrontation, relationship that develops between Joseph and the uh, sons. Remember, the brothers, the sons of Jacob and his brothers, remember, they were the ones that cast him into a well, pulled him out of the well, and then sold him into slavery and went to Egypt. So he could have had him killed. And he wasn't speaking his native language either, so they didn't know who he was when they saw him. Enjoy the reading. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You'll learn a lot by reading those, the episodes of Joseph. They're some of my favorite in the entire Bible. Lots of good learning there. 1 Corinthians. Okay. Now, what Paul is going to be doing in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 6, and 7, he's going to be dealing with issues in the church. Now, the Corinthians were very skilled. God had blessed them greatly, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. They didn't lack any spiritual gift. But there were some serious problems in the church that he had to take care of. Now, why is this important? Because in churches, there are serious problems. I'm a pastor of a church right now, okay? And there are problems that come up. You have to deal with those problems. We are following the gospel, as I said last time. We've made Christ our cornerstone. We're building upon that foundation. We're building a beautiful edifice to the Lord, as it were, 1 Corinthians 3. But there are, there are human beings, and human beings have sin, and we have to deal with that. So let's look at chapter uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 4. He's dealing with some problems in the church. Look what he says in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited his apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, we've, because we have become a skeptical to the world, a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. So he's contrasting, he's comparing and contrasting their understanding of who God is and how they're doing in the church as compared to what he's doing. Paul is getting persecuted. Paul is getting maligned. Paul is weak. He's comparing and contrasting to them. um, And he's talking about why he wrote this. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So Paul sometimes speaks in terms of admonishment and correction. And he goes on to do that. Some are arrogant, verse 18, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God, he says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, does not consist in talk, but in power, with power. All right. There's sexual immorality immorality in the church in chapter 5. It's actually reported, verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife 
and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Okay? He says, I'm absent in body in verse 3. I am present in spirit and, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So we've got a terrible thing going on. We've got a confrontation in verse uh, chapter five, 4. We have this horrible thing in chapter 5. We have lawsuits in chapter 6 and things going on amongst themselves. Okay? Look at verse 4 of chapter 6. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Now, what I love about this, Paul is very direct. Paul is very honest. He is not, uh, he has no fear of man. He is not af afraid. He is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not, he's not afraid of what people can do to him. <clears throat> he has a, an extraordinarily courageous spirit. He is uh, standing on what he knows is true and he's sharing it with them. He tells us in chapter 6 to flee sexual immorality. Uh, and the problems of sexual morality that we see in chapter 5. He talks about the importance of our bodies and how we cannot be uh, susceptible to using our body for immoral purposes. And he outlines what those are. He says in the last verse, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Glorify God in your body. Your body is very important. Christianity takes the body very seriously. Our bodies are important. They are significant. God holds them in high value. Enjoy your body. Love your body. But use it for the glory of God, not for your own purposes and your own will. Find out what the will of God is regarding your body and how it should be used. But do that for the glory of God. There are many scriptures in the Bible about how we use our bodies. Then we have in chapter 7, another fascinating chapter about the principles for marriage. He said it's good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have, verse 4, authority over her own body, but the husband does. This is a fascinating thing. Now, what is the right of my body in regard to marriage? What is the right of my body in the regards to a marriage between a man and a woman and the sexual relations that we are going to share in that married relationship? That Likewise, the husband does not have authority of his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by uh, agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan might not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So it's very direct. Now we're talking about our own sexual lives. That's in the Bible. There it is in black and white in chapter 7. In chapter 5, he condemns someone for having an affair wrongly. In chapter 6, he talks about the importance of our body and aligning ourselves uh, in our body and spirit with, uh, in a godly fashion. Uh, and he talks about the prostitute in that chapter. F he says, flee sexual immorality in chapter 6, verse 18. He comes back in the principles of marriage. Now he talks about the unmarried in verse 8. He talks about the married in verse 10. 
And he says to the rest in verse 12. Okay. He says in verse 17, only let each person live the life of the Lord is assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So Paul has not only this extraordinary ministry of evangelization, of preaching the gospel, he is actually the leader in these churches. This is a very high calling. Paul has given, been given uh, the power of the Holy Spirit and a profound understanding of who Christ is, profound authority, profound wisdom and understanding. And again, he is the pastor. He is the person that's uh, going in and evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people and calling people to Christ, setting up churches, having people lead churches, writing them back, as we see in Corinthians and Colossians and uh, Galatians and in uh, Corinthians, Romans. We have these letters that now he's identifying things that are going on in the church. He's answering their questions. There are some things that are concerning. And think of it as you're reading uh, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. Think about it in that way. Once we understand the context of which he is speaking, then the next thing to do is how does this apply to me? How does God's eternal word apply to my life in these issues? But first, they are written to that group of people, the Corinthians, at that time frame in the first century. Then, because the word of God, as I said, is eternal, we are able to gain great knowledge and understanding, wisdom, and action in our understanding of what God is saying through these holy scriptures. Now, the Gospel of Mark is a little bit simpler, I must admit. And we left off in chapter 2. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 7. And we have a great fo crowd follows Jesus. They heard they were doing. He told the disciples to get a boat ready. Verse 9, he healed many. And all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out, You are the Son of God. Again, as I said last time, miracles, healings, casting out of devils, an amazing, incredible person. He's teaching them. He's doing miracles. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. The 12 apostles go up to the mountain and he called those that he desired. They came to him. He appointed 12. They are listed there in verses... Um, 15 to 19, he goes home. He can't even eat because there's so many people around him. Why are people around him? Because they have problems. He can answer the problems. He has great skill to answer the needs of the people of God. Then he talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Again, as I said last time, we have the scribes, we have the Pharisees, we have the teachers that are taking him on. They're asking him questions. They are falling back on their own uh, Jewish beliefs and practices. And we have this new person that's come along. Remember, they're waiting for the Messiah, but they don't think he's the Messiah. So he comes along and he begins to say these things. He begins to ask questions about that. His mother and brothers, I love this. Verse 31. His mother and his brothers come and are standing outside. They sit to him and called him. All right. Uh, go tell Jesus that we want to talk to him. This is his mother and his brothers. 
So a crowd was sitting around Jesus. He's sitting down, crowd is around Jesus. He's teaching a crowd. It would be a fabulous thing to see. And somebody goes to him and said, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. They want to talk to you. They want to see you. Jesus answered them, okay, I'm going to go right now. He didn't do that. Okay, I'm coming in five minutes. He didn't do that. He looked around the crowd. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? That's kind of a strange question. Who are my mother and my brothers? Well, the ones that are calling you. He looked around at those who sat about him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, you can't get more clear about that, people. His mother and his brother are those that do the will of God. And that's why the prioritization of the will of God in your life as a Christian person is tantamount. It's crucial, coming from Jesus' mouth himself. Chapter 4. Now, chapter 4 is a beautiful chapter about parables. Now we have a teaching. He begins to teach beside the sea in verse 1. Very large crowd gathers, and he has these parables. Here we go. They're the parable of the sower. Sower went out to sow. Four soils. Only one soil works. The other three don't. 75% of the four soils, soils yield a 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Even within the soils, there's a demarcation. Not every the Egalitarianism, that doesn't, doesn't work that way in the kingdom. Everybody's equal in the sight of God in terms of him creating them and saving them. But what people receive is different. And what they produce is different. Then he interprets the uh, parable for them. And then he talks about the lamp under the basket. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added. Verse 23. For to the one who has, more will be given. For the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So it's our responsibility, if we've been given much, to give much back. The parable of the growing seed is another parable about the kingdom of God. And the parable of the mustard seed is another parable about the kingdom of God. So what we do is we interpret rightly what these parables mean. And then we think about them and we pray about them and we reflect upon them. We consider them seriously and about how they touch our lives. Okay? So this is a great way to teach, but not everybody understands what he's saying as we see uh, in verses 10 through uh, 12 of chapter 4. Not everybody understands what he's saying. He calms the storm. Oh, oh, let me first say verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it, as they were able to hear it. I pray that you're able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Then he calms a storm. So he's powerful over nature. They get in the boat with him. They go to the other side. He's sleeping on a cushion. There's a terrible storm out. Now, several of these people were fishermen. He stands up. They panic. He stands up. He rebukes the wind and says to the sea, be still. And they're going, what? He says, why are you so afraid? 
have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? He has power over the sea. He has power over Satan. He has power over leprosy. He's later going to raise people from the dead. Look at chapter 5, which is in this post on Saturday, 1 through 20. Now we have this extended teaching from Mark about a person that was so powerful that no one could tame him. But Jesus himself cast out a legion of demons, and the person at the end was in his right mind. And this person went away in verse 20 and began to began to proclaim in the Decapolis, this is in Gentiles' territory, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, he says in verse 7 of chapter 5. I abjure you by God, do not torment me. Come out of this man, you unclean spirit, Jesus says. This is a person with extraordinary power, divine Son of God, man, extraordinary compassion, and extraordinary teaching. So he's asking us to study about him, listen to him, learn from him, and embrace him in relationship. Embrace him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Embrace him as your Savior and your Lord. It's much to think about in the second week in Lent. Again, I hope and pray you're having a wonderful Lenten uh, season. Uh, Lent's very important as we prepare ourselves for Jesus' death, as I said last time, and we prepare our hearts and minds. We make amendment of life, self-reflection, self-denial, fasting. I pray that it's going well, and I pray these scriptures will bless you abundantly. They are tremendous. God bless you, and we'll see you next week when we look at the scriptures in the third Sunday, the third week in Lent. God bless you.